can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. That'll be our sermon text this morning, Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 25. And as you're flipping there in your Bible, uh, let's pray. God of all mercy, we thank you for this day. I thank you that the gospel is true. It is real. It is among us. It is the hope of Isaiah and the psalmist that your righteousness and redemption and justice would come into the midst of your people and that you would make for yourself a people innumerable that we sang about who would sing holy, holy, holy in the heavenly courts, God. We thank you that that has happened, it is happening, and it will be completed fully and finally someday. And so help us to put our hope in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who reigns with God on the throne. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see him and to savor our Lord Jesus this morning, whether for the first time, God, in believing or for the hundredth time, God, that you would continue to confirm the good news of gospel in our hearts this morning by faith. We trust that you'll do this. We need you to make this happen by your spirit. We give ourselves completely and totally into your hands this, this morning. Lord, be with me as the preacher of your word. Be with us as hearers of your word, that we would hear them, we would love them, and that we would do them. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start with a little bit of catch-up, just a little bit of catch-up. For most of our summer, we have been in the deep end. We've been in the deep end of the Apostle Paul's deepest letter. So we spent five weeks in Romans chapter 8, and we've been in Romans 9, 10, and 11 for the last three or four Sundays. And this morning, Paul ties it all together, or at least his argument in Romans 9 through 11. These are deep things. They're they're contemplating the mysteries of God, the deep things of God that we have been considering, and they all come to a point this morning. Now, before we come to that point, we come to that one singular point of the text this morning, I want to begin where I left off last week and answer the question that I said I would answer this morning, that I would answer, and the question is, who are God's people? Who are God's people, and in particular, according to the Apostle Paul in these three chapters? Now, there's an intricate dance. There's kind of a back and forth, an interplay of language in Romans 9 through 11. What do I mean by that? Paul, he uses pretty common language a few times in these chapters. The language of Jew and Gentile, which many of us who've read a lot of Paul's letters are familiar with Jew and Gentile distinctions, but he shifts his language in Romans 9 through 11, and he primarily speaks not about Jews, but Israelites, or Israel, or all Israel, or my kinsmen, the children of Abraham, or else the children of God, the children of the promise, the sons of Israel, the sons of the living God. This really intense covenantal nationalistic language of the people of Israel. Now, another thing that he's doing, so he's weaving together the entire Old Testament. We saw that a little bit last week, but Paul speaks... He speaks both broadly about the people of God, so he talks about the people of God as being all, or else all people, or everyone, or the world, and he also speaks 
precisely in these three chapters about God's purpose of electing specific persons, by name even, or else a chosen nation. He calls them vessels of mercy. He, God, God saves a remnant according to his gracious choice, right? He keeps 7,000 men for himself. So there's both broad language about God's people, the Israelites, the nation of Israel, and there's also some specific language. So all of this is coming together in these three chapters. So here's the question again, who are those people? All these different titles and things coming together, who are God's people? Now, some of you might have an objection. You might say to me, Chris, didn't you say just last week to not speculate about the hidden counsel of God? Those things by which we don't know. We don't know them. They're inscrutable to us. And with C.S. Lewis last week, I exhorted us to not be speculative people. What I meant by that was don't be like a scientist who puts the Holy Scripture or else God below us to analyze him. Like we can put it in a Petri dish and be master of the whole thing. We don't want to be that kind of person. And, I said last week, don't worry about if you are predestined. And I quoted Martin Luther, who said, if you're worried about that, don't be worried. Just say your prayers, and you will know that you are elect. Okay, so just, just say a prayer. Just say a prayer, Luther said, that great Calvinist, and you are of the elect. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't speculate. But I also said this, and this is what Josiah wrote down. He took good notes. I said this, at the same time, we should study Paul's story argument in order to understand what he is saying. So, to, to not speculate or else to not worry about the hidden counsels of God or be able to comprehend all mysteries doesn't mean that we don't invest time in understanding what he does say to us, especially in these chapters. We should study. And so this is where our sermon text begin. It turns the corner to the answer to this question. Look with me at verse 25. The first part of verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. So pause for a second. Paul begins by saying really just what I just said. Don't become the kind of speculative, know-it-all, divisive person who is puffed up with knowledge, he says in 1 Corinthians, who's puffed up, who's wise in your own sight. And this is using the language of Isaiah. Hear this from Isaiah 5 and verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Don't have a high estimation of your own wisdom. Isaiah 6 and verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So don't be wise in your own sight. But Paul says, I don't want you to be dumb. I don't. I d that doesn't mean don't think. Don't use your brain. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Paul says, Christianity isn't against knowing, it's against being a know-it-all. Okay, don't be like me, like I am sometimes, and my worst self, a know-it-all who, who immediately has an answer, even when I don't really have an answer. I feign knowledge. Don't do that. 
but it's not against knowing. Blaise Pascal, in his 842nd Pensee, he says it like this, Christianity is wise. It is wise because, why is, why is it wise? Because it is the most learned and most strongly based on miracles, prophecies, etc. And this guy created the first working computer. He was not a dunce, okay? A pretty smart guy. Christianity is wise. It's the most learned. So you can be reasonable and wise and have knowledge and pursue knowledge. But don't be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of the mystery, though, Paul says. So this intricate linguistic dance, this deep theological study of Paul that Paul tells in 9 through 11 all circles around this question and I'm going to say it one more time who are God's people look at the second part of verse 25 here's his answer or the beginning of his answer what is this mystery that he's talking about a partial hardening has come upon Israel until Paul says until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in verse 26 and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, there's a lot of loaded language in these two verses or these two parts of these two verses. Here is the beginning of Paul's answer to this complicated family history that he's been telling for three chapters, which also answers the question, incidentally, for you and for me, us Gentiles and I don't know if there are any people of uh, national or else Jewish descent in this room, but I'm guessing that most of us are Gentiles here today. It answers this question too. How did we get here? How did we get here? Why are we even here? Paul says God's purpose in election has come down to us today because there was a partial hardening of God's people. Israel. God's people is chosen people. And this partial hardening happened. It happened in history. Every Israelite whom he's writing to in Rome knows this to be true. They know that not all their ancestors followed the Lord. They've all read the stories. They know the specific people. Paul says, why? He answers, why does this happen? So that, so that God might fulfill his promise to Abraham to bless not just a nation, but all nations in his covenant, all nations. So we Israelites, we were partially hardened, Paul says. We were disobedient so that the fullness of the Gentiles, i.e. you and I, the wild olive shoots, might be grafted in to the righteous branch. That is his answer. That's his answer. And Paul says that this grafting in of the fullness of the Gentiles into the cultivated olive tree of God's people. And this is a radical statement. It restores. When the, it, when the fullness of the Gentiles are being grafted in to Israel, into all Israel, this restores the divided kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And this is a major theme in the Old Testament. Who is all Israel? We want, we want to restore the fullness of the kingdom and not be divided anymore. And so Paul says that the grafting in of the Gentiles, of the outsider nations, it actually fulfills this promise to all Israel, which is the fullness of God's people. And those people will be saved, the Apostle Paul says. So, does this mean that Jews have been cut off 
and replaced by Gentiles as God's people. This would be called replacement theology, and I'm not going to go into it, but the answer to that is no, because of things that we've already seen. How much more, Paul says, will these, the natural branches that have already been cut off because of disobedience, because of unbelief, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Their story is not over yet. And this line of interpretation goes all the way back to the church fathers and again through the Reformation all the way up to us today that the natural descendants of Abraham, the Jews, the Israelites have been and are presently being grafted back into all Israel by faith. So there's a it's already happened, it's happening, and it will, and this goes all the way back again to the very beginning, that it will continue to happen until the end, that natural and wild branches will continue to be grafted into the righteous branch, who is Christ. And so, no, no, Israel is not cut off. The nation of Israel is not cut off. God has not abandoned the nation of Israel Neither has he abandoned you and me. God can, and Paul says God will, graft in the natural branches. Those who are, he'll say later, beloved for the sake of their forefathers. They're beloved because they were born into the family. If they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted back in. To use the imagery, and this is where I always go in my head to think about this purpose, this purpose of the partial hardening of Israel to bring in Gentile nations, you and me from all the world throughout all time since the writing of this letter. John says in Revelation chapter 6, and he pictures this heavenly courtroom where the martyrs or else the saints who have died in Christ, who testified faithfully to the end to Jesus, they're before the throne. And the Lamb is there on the throne, and they're worshiping with the host of heaven, Jews and Gentiles who have died in Christ, and they cried out. Roman, Revelation, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10. They all cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? So, how long till you finish? Till you finish your purposes? And the Lamb. The risen Lord Jesus replies to this question, and this question that's even kind of a, an angsty accusation. Why don't you vindicate us, Lord? We were faithful to the end. Why don't you finish? Why don't you finish what you started? And Jesus replies to their question in Revelation chapter 6, rest, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. This is the same language of Romans chapter 11. And John goes on to describe in the next chapter a 12-tribe a twelve tribe nation, 144,000 strong, completely arrayed underneath the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is now the first among the 12 tribes. He wasn't originally the first among the 12 tribes. And then he says that, this, this nation, all this number, this fullness, all Israel is sealed. And John says this, a great multitude that no one could number. Where from? From every nation. 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So the fullness of the people of God, of all Israel, is in every place for the national nation of Israel, for those who are natural branches, and for us, for all people who come by faith into the righteous branch. It's a remnant, 144,000, 12 tribes, a great uncountable multitude from every nation. So who are God's people? Who is all Israel? All who call on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Perhaps the most brilliant, and, and I think he demonstrates not only his brilliance, but his humility, uh, theologian of the early church, Origen, says it like this. What all Israel means, or what the fullness of the Gentiles will be, he says, what, what it will be, and he's writing in the 200s, only God knows, along with his only begotten son, and perhaps a few of his friends. But Origen doesn't claim to be one of them. I love that. I love that. God knows, and his only begotten son, and perhaps a few of his friends know who all Israel is, who they will be. This is the right posture. So just be patient, Jesus says, both to those who have died in Christ and are awaiting the resurrection from the dead, and to us, wait, wait on me. Not until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, not until the, un the believing natural branches are grafted back in by faith, not until I gather my people. That's what I'm doing. This is the reason why I tarry. This is why I delay. All Israel will be saved. So this is why 2023 exists. This is cool. God's patient. He desires all men to come to repentance. So be patient. Rest a little longer. So that's my intro. <laughs> that's my intro to this sermon. What's the point? Now we come to what I think is the point. It's the point of this sermon it's definitely the point of our section of Romans chapter 11, but I would say it's the end, it's the telos, it's the, it's the climax, it's the point of everything. Everything that I've said this morning about who God's people are in whatever kind of answer I gave you, whether that was satisfactory to you or, to or not, whatever I said about all Israel, it is all vanity, it is all vain speculation without this point, without this point Look with me at verse 26, again in Romans chapter 11, verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. And he, again, he quotes Isaiah chapter 59. The deliverer, or else the redeemer, will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, Isaiah in chapter 27. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When I take away their sins. So going back to the beginning of what I call, what I call, and this is, this is an ancient tradition, the gospel according to Isaiah. The early church fathers called Isaiah the fifth gospel. So in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3, Isaiah anticipates this day. And really, all of the sermons that are collected through all the years of Isaiah's ministry, throughout the rest of the 66 books of Isaiah, are longing for, they're looking forward to this hope in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3. Many peoples shall come. Many peoples, Isaiah says. And they will say, 
Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to Yahweh, the one true God, to the house of the God of Jacob. So this is the God of Jacob, the nation of Israel, that he may teach us, that Yahweh may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, all peoples. Neither shall they learn war anymore. This is the hope at the beginning of Isaiah's proclamation. The great preacher Isaiah, he proclaims that Yahweh God will one day teach us. This is our hope. He will teach us. Out of Zion, the law will go to the nations and there will be no more war anymore. All nations will be united underneath the word of Yahweh. There will be no more disputes. No more disputes and he, and this, this ambiguity or this personified presence of Yahweh coming right after the word of Yahweh, he will come to his dull and blind people. He will gather the lawless and unclean nations into the house of Jacob on God's holy mountain. This is the hope. And this is, let me be clear here, this is the mystery revealed that Paul is talking about. This is the point or the tip of the spear. There is no people, there is no Israel, there is no root, there is no tree, there is no branch, there is no righteousness, no deliverance, no redemption, no hope. There is no gospel, good news, without Christ, the deliverer. There is no hope, there's nothing. Everything else is pointless. Out of Zion, Yahweh must come. Out of Zion, Yahweh must break in. Out of Zion, God must declare the law of the spirit of life that sets you free from the law of sin and death. Out of Zion, the word of God, the word of the Lord God, Yahweh, the divine speech must come. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God and it was with God. It must come and decide all of this doubt for me, as the old hymn goes. From Israel, from Judah, the king must come. The redeemer must come. The redeemer will come, Paul says. Isaiah says, he will redeem from punishment. This is what he will do. He will deliver from guilt. He will take away sins. There is no peace without him. But with him, there is peace and there's rest. There's redemption. There's new life. There's deliverance. And this is the mystery revealed. This is the point. St. Augustine says it like this. No one, no one who encounters this gospel, this good news, no one who is... In control, he says, the arbiter of his own will can begin the new life. Augustine says, if you need to be in control, you cannot begin the new life. God the Son must save us. He must save us, and this is the gospel. It is Isaiah's good news proclamation that Paul simply quotes over and over again as pointing to Christ. 
But this gospel, and hear me, this gospel is a stumbling block to everyone who does not give up his own will. It, does not, it is a stumbling block to Israelites, and it's a stumbling block to you and to me who always want to fight to be in control. I don't want to surrender my will to God's will. I don't want to do that by nature. I have to be conquered by the king. I don't want to release my grip. I don't like giving over control to other people. I like to be in control myself. And this is definitely manifest in the way that I approach the Lord God, the way that I don't ask of him many things. I don't want to give up control to his mighty hand. And so the gospel, even even as, as it's good news to those who are believing, it also reminds us over and over again how much in us is still causing us to stumble, how much in us that we are, we are resisting the rule and reign of God in our lives. Surrender control completely, the Apostle Paul calls us to. Die, or else die every day. Give all of my life and my hope and my intellect and my strength and my striving and my weakness, everything, whatever you have, give it all to him and cast yourself upon his mercy, his deliverance, and his unseen, unsearchable purpose, his grace. You don't have to know it all. For God has consigned all to disobedience. And even those who are believing, we struggle with disobedience. But we're not hopeless. He's consigned us all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, the Apostle Paul says. Oh, the depth, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We can know him. It is good to pursue knowledge. It is good to be wise. But it's also good to embrace the foolishness of the cross. Hear this again from Blaise Pascal finishing that ponce that I started earlier. Christianity is wise, Pascal says, and foolish. It's wise and foolish. Wise because it is the most learned and most strongly based on miracles, prophecies, etc. The Apostle Paul has proved this comprehensively over the first 11 chapters of this letter, and he'll continue to do so. It's wise, it's, it's knowledgeable, it's intellectual, it's reasonable. But it's also foolish, Pascal says, because it is not all of this knowledge, not all this reasoning, not all of this wisdom which makes people believe. It never is. It never is. What makes them believe is the cross. It's the cross, full stop. And so St. Paul, Pascal says, who came with wisdom, he came with signs, said that he came with neither wisdom or signs. Because his goal wasn't to make us a bunch of intellectual people who think well. His goal was to make converts, to convert us. Those who come only to convince may say they come with wisdom and signs. He is a stumbling block to those who are perishing, but to us who believe, it is the power of God. The cross is foolishness. Give up control. 
Give up your desire to hold it all together in your head. I cannot help but quote uh, The Four Loves again. Uh, that's our book club book for this month, um, and this is one of my favorite paragraphs probably in all of literature. C.S. Lewis says it like this. God creates the universe already foreseeing. So God creates it already seeing ahead of time. And Lewis says, or should we say seeing? Should we say seeing? There are no past or present or future tenses in God. He sees. He sees even as he creates the universe. As he, as he spoke it into existence, as he spoke Adam and Eve into existence, he sees the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is, time after time for breath's sake, hitched up. God causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. He saw this. He saw that presently, even as he created the world, he saw this, that we would take advantage of him, Lewis says. This is love. This is good news. This is gospel. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. This is what it is. God in Christ did what we cannot do. This is the point. This is the knife edge the word of life and the word of disdain and disgust, the great hope and the stumbling block. Reflecting on this verse, Amos chapter 3 and verse 12, St. Thomas Aquinas says this, and here's the verse first. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear. So imagine... God's people, God's nation, like a lamb that has been brutally eaten by a lion. And the shepherd comes in and pulls out two legs and an ear, a severed, a broken lamb. This is the image from, I, uh, from Amos chapter 3. From the mouth of the lion, two legs or a piece of an ear the shepherd rescues, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. I don't even know what that last part means, but it's a vivid image. And Aquinas says this is, this is the, the stakes. This is how far our shepherd has come to redeem us. We are, Aquinas says, converted with great difficulty. He converted us with great difficulty through a certain violence. He, he ripped us out of the lion's mouth and he will restore us again one day. So hear the gospel. Hear the good news that Isaiah preached and that all the gospel writers preached and Peter and Paul. Everything leads to a king who would bleed and die to sprinkle many nations. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah's gospel this is the stumbling block, and it is the good news. It is the only thing that can save. 
the writer of Hebrews puts it like this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You are not in control. In other words, you are not in control, O man. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting, waiting, waiting for you and for me. Blaise Pascal, Jesus is a God whom we can approach without pride and before whom we can humble ourselves without despair. We can approach giving up all of our vain conceit, all of our pretension, all of our supposed wisdom. We can give it all up and we can also come without despair in full humility before him. This is the Jesus and the God whom we approach Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.